Well, for the past month or so now, give or take a week, uh, we have been in a sermon series you see on the screen called Signs to Believe. We are looking at the miracles, the signs, that's what, what the word John uses in the Gospel of John for these, these miracles. And Jesus did many, many miracles, but John records seven of them. Actually, there's an eighth one. It's the resurrection, and we will look at that sign on, on Resurrection Sunday. But John says this in John 20, Jesus did many other signs. And again, those are the miracles. He did them in the presence of the disciples. And they're not written in this book. But these seven, okay, that he's written of, they are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. In other words... These, these signs, we've been saying each week, they point beyond themselves. It's not simply about Jesus turning water to wine. Uh, it's not simply about Jesus um, making someone walk who had been lame for th- some 38 years. Uh, it's not simply that Jesus could walk on water, just a snapshot of some of the ones that we've looked at. But the signs, the miracles, they point beyond themselves to some other reality about who Jesus is, about who he is and why he has come. Now, next week, just a little preview of coming attraction. We have a guest speaker. His name's Matt Moore. Matt has spoken once at SOMA last year, uh, but Matt is our new district superintendent for uh, our denomination, for our Western District. Uh, Many of you remember the name Neil Brower. Neil and Judy served uh, in this role of superintendent for some nine years, and then they transitioned last year, and, and we just voted uh, back a couple weeks ago on Matt as our superintendent. And so I'm excited for Matt to build a relationship with our church, and he's going to come, and he's going to teach on the sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So that will go back uh, into John a little earlier for that next week. And I'm looking forward to him, like I said, sharing with us. But today, now we come to John chapter 9, and this is actually the sixth sign or miracle. We have, we have one more if we're going chronologically. Again, we'll go back and catch up the one we missed, the 5,000. But this one here in John 9 is the sixth sign that John records for us. And it's the sign where Jesus heals a man that was born blind. A man who had been born blind. That's interesting. As you read through the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record that Jesus did all kinds of healings. And it sounds like, in fact, that that healing blind people was something Jesus did quite a bit of. Matthew 11, verses 4 and 5, read this. This is uh, where um, John has been arrested, and and John sends some of his disciples to Jesus' disciples to ask, "Is, is Jesus the one And this is Jesus' answer. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And and on it goes. And there's other passages as as well. Luke 7.22 is another. That that make it seem as if um, restoring the blind was one of the regular miracles Jesus did. In fact, the Old Testament even says as much. That when Messiah came, the promised anointed one, this would be what he does. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, it's on the screen. Uh, this is uh, God speaking here. Uh, and God says this, I am the Lord, I have called you. And that you is a singular you. At this point, he's speaking to 
his Messiah. He's speaking to the anointed one. It's God the Father says, I have called you Messiah, who again is the Lord Jesus. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 3.16 here, God says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. And so there is, uh, yes, a spiritual eye opening, which we will definitely get to, but, but literally this is one of the things Messiah did. So Jesus healed blind people on more than one occasion. But here in John 9, we have a very specific incident of Jesus healing a blind man. In fact, uh, this account takes up the whole chapter. We're going to make our way through it, um, and we'll kind of go quickly through the latter section, but we we are going to spend our our time in John 9, 1 through 41, and we will make our way through this sign, again, this miracle that points beyond itself. So if you haven't already, I would invite you to turn to John 9 in your Bible. And again, this is Jesus healing a man born blind, and we're going to see that it's only Jesus who is able, because he is the light of the world. We're going to talk about that phrase, even as we see here from Isaiah, the Messiah would be a light for the nations. And Jesus is going to speak of himself as the light of the world. It's only Jesus as the light of the world who has the power to give this man who's born blind sight. But, but here's the point for us, church, today. We are blind, but our blindness is a spiritual blindness. And we are spiritually blind, and it is only Jesus, the light of the world, who has the power to give us spiritual sight. You're going to hear me say that over and over again. We are spiritually blind, and it's only Jesus, the light of the world, who has the power to give us spiritual sight. We need that spiritual sight. And so let's look at John 9, this healing of this man born blind. And the chapter lends itself pretty nicely to these three movements, and I'll just kind of use these as markers so that we all kind of know where we're at. We're going to see, number one, the healing itself, the actual uh, miracle sign take place. Then we're going to see the investigation of the healing by the Pharisees. They, they are not very happy about what Jesus is going to do. And then number three, we are going to talk about the, the point or the application of this sign of this healing to us today, okay? So there's our our outline. So let's go. Let's look at the healing itself. So John 9, beginning at verse 1, and I'll read just the first two verses as we start. As he passed by, so Jesus, as he's going by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man? or his parents, that he was born blind. So as Jesus is going about, he sees this man, he notices him. We'll come back to that. And and John tells us that this man had been born blind from birth. And the disciples ask a question. It's a question that probably, if we're honest, it's offensive to us, right? We we don't don't like to think that way. You know, we're we're modern people and so forth. But uh, but boy, they have this, this question that actually was a very good question for them, uh, their prevailing wisdom of their day. Who sinned, Jesus? Was it this man? Although, isn't that funny? How, if he was born blind, did that mean he sinned in the womb? But nonetheless, they ask. 
who sinned, uh, this man in the womb, or his parents, so that he was born blind? I mean, that's their question. And again, we look at that and we think, well, boy, Neanderthals asking something ridiculous like that. Uh, But you might recall, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, um, when we were looking in John 5, at the account of Jesus healing the man who had been uh, lame or not able to walk for 38 years, we, we touched on this. Jesus is very clear in John 5 that that man's uh, condition of not being able to walk was a result of some sin. That's why Jesus says, don't sin anymore, that nothing worse happens. And we talked about the way that is constructed. Jesus is linking him not sinning anymore with how he had been living. Like something happened. He did something that, that brought this on himself. Uh, there are other examples in the Bible that speak to this. It's not universal. It's not that every time we're sick or every time there's someone with a major illness, major disease, major suffering, not every time is it because of sin, but the Bible affirms the fact that sometimes it is. There are cases where an illness, where an experience of suffering can be and is the direct consequence of specific sin. Uh, In the Old Testament, Numbers 12, Miriam's revolt is an account of Specific sin leading to an experience of suffering. Uh, In the New Testament, in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, in the earliest days of the church, they they lie and they are killed by God right on the spot. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, some of the Christians at Corinth, the Apostle Paul says, are sick because of how they've been treating and mistreating the Lord's Supper. That ought to scare us uh, just a little, more than it maybe does. And then, of course, I mentioned the man in John 5. Again, hard pill to swallow, I know, but the Bible affirms some illness is a result of sin. Not universally, but there are some instances. We, we can't universalize. That's not correct. Um, the Bible would deny that. Again, examples of that would be Job. Job suffered quite a lot but he was a righteous man and it was not because of his sin. Or the Apostle Paul, uh, he speaks of um, not being able to preach in Galatia in chapter 4, verse 13 because of an illness and there's no mention that it was sin. He would speak of his thorn in the flesh, this, this thing given to him by God and it doesn't seem to be because of sin. It's just something God allowed and did. Okay, so that's a hard one, but we'll, we'll let the text sit there with that. So here's Jesus' answer, continuing back to John 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not this man that he sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says, guys, this situation isn't because of his sin, his parents sinned. No, this situation, his blindness, is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Him. Now we have to pause on that for a moment and think about a couple of different things. Um, we're going to see it a little bit later in the account that this man is of age. That, that's going to play into the, the story as he and his parents get involved with the Pharisees. So for him to be of age in this context means he was at least 13 years old. And so let's just, you know, let's just say he's 13. We know he's at least 13. He, if he's of age, he could be a bit older. But let's just go with 13. 
Jesus says, this, this poor kid, and I've got four kids, some of you know, my youngest isn't quite 13, he'll be 13 in May. But for me, that's a nice frame of reference, right? He's just about 13. Jesus says, this man was born blind so that 13 years later, God's work could be displayed in him. God, let me live vicariously through that. I don't want to experience anything like that, right? Who would? I mean, how, can you imagine? We are going to find out things one day. You know, God, why? Why did I suffer for so long with this? Why did I go through this? I prayed, God, I prayed. And, and God always answers. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's just wait. Again, another hard pill to swallow. Sorry, lots of hard pills to swallow today. That young man didn't realize his 13 years or more of life. His parents didn't realize as they experienced what they did as parents. The challenges, the challenges. One writer says this, God in his mysterious and wise providence sometimes allows his children to go through hardship and suffering so they can experience God's mercy and power in delivering them. God help us, help us if we find ourselves in that situation. But Jesus isn't done. That's not all he has to say in response to the question. He continues, verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's right. Amen. Now there's a double meaning going on here with what Jesus is saying. Now on the one hand, uh, it's kind of obvious, right? Generally, uh, you can only do work during the day. And of course, we just had our time change. And so uh, we're staying up longer outside later. Oh, look, it's six o'clock and we can still be out and do stuff. And and so there's a very general understanding to what Jesus means. Um, While it's day, you work, but night is coming. And so we, we understand kind of that idea. So on the one hand, Jesus says, we must work the works of God while it's day. But it is fascinating. He says, we, he includes his disciples in this work uh, of, of the one God has fought, the father who has sent Jesus. So he's inviting and including them in uh, the work he has come to do. But the other more more figurative meaning of this, of, of while it is day, that was Jesus' way of speaking of while he was on the earth. He, he's saying, while I'm here, it's like daytime. So we got to do work while I'm here. There's a night coming when I will be uh, uh, having died and been buried and risen and then eventually ascended to the Father. Uh, I, I won't be here and I'll be in heaven working in a different kind of way, but but I'm, I'm going to be gone. And so until that time comes, while it's day, while I'm here, we, there's work to be done. There's things to do. There's people to heal. We, we saw, again, back in John 5, Jesus had said, my father is working until now, and I am working. And of course, there in John 5, you remember, that was his claim to being God, because God, the Father, always works even on the Sabbath, right? God doesn't stop and just sort of spin the universe for a day and step back and sleep, right? And then, you know, keep going after the Sabbath. Even God, the Father, sustains the world on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, uh, if he's doing work like his Father, he was calling himself God. And, and we, we talked about all of those things. But he says here, 
As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, in John 8, and again, we're not going through the whole book of John. We're just looking at these signs. But in John 8, I I re-listened to it this morning as I was up taking my walk. John 8 is this this discourse and this back and forth with Jesus and the religious leaders about a lot of things. And in John 8, uh, verse 12, that's where Jesus emphatically said, I am, and, and you might again remember from, from last week, that, that connection to God's revelation of himself to Moses, the, the great I am. For Jesus to speak that way, his hearers would have known that he was calling himself God. And, and in John 8, he, he said emphatically, I am the light of the world. Now again, in the Old Testament, God himself is called light. Uh, God's word is called light. Some of you know Psalm 119, 105, made famous by Amy Grant many years ago. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. God, your word is light. God's presence in the midst of his people was was seen to be light. But now for for Jesus to to say that he is the light of the world, uh, that's quite a big thing for, for him to do and for him to be emphatic in John 8. And now here to restate it. He again is telling them, telling those that are around that, that this man was born blind so that God's power might be displayed because we have work to do, the one who sent me, because while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And, and they would be connecting everything he had just finished saying back in John 8. Because again, we are spiritually blind and we're going to see from this sign that it's only Jesus, the light of the world, who has the power not only to give that man physical sight, but us spiritual sight as well. So let's see this healing now in verses six and seven. So having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Having declared who he is, having declared what he's come for, Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, and then puts the mud on this man's eyes. Do you know why Jesus spit and made mud and and, and what the spit and the dirt signify? I don't know either. No idea, right? That's a weird one. And every time he healed blind people, he didn't do it the same way. But in this instance, he spits and makes mud. Uh, John Calvin, like John Calvin in our family, he suggested uh, 500 or so years ago that the mud pack was designed to double the intensity of the blindness in order to magnify the cure. Maybe. Add that to your list of questions that you want to ask Jesus one day. Why spit in mud? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If there's uncertainty about the mud and the spit, which is fine, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the sign. Uh, Let's keep going. What is clear is what Jesus says there in verse 7. He says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And that word, Siloam, that pool, that name means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Remember, Jesus had said in verse 4 that we, his disciples and him, must work the works of God who sent him. 
And now Jesus sends this man to this pool, which by its name means sent. This man obeys Jesus. And here's what's fascinating. If you look closely at the text, he still has not seen Jesus. Okay? He still has not seen Jesus. He couldn't see. He has a conversation. Jesus does his spit thing and puts the mud pack on and tells the guy to go and wash. And so the guy goes and washes and Jesus uh, is going to uh, leave the scene for a little bit. So this is, just keep that in mind. Jesus, the light of the world, has done another miracle, another sign, another healing. But again, it's not simply a, a miracle. It's not just a sign of his abilities, but as we continue to talk about, it's to help us understand we are blind too, but our blindness is spiritual, and it is only Jesus who is the light of the world who has that power to give us spiritual sight. So verse 8, um, this account of the healing continues. and Let me read through it. The neighbors... Don't you love neighbors? Then I mean, this just this just this this account just invites all this wonder. Like to have been a fly and to have witnessed the interaction is just lots to imagine. Uh, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, they were saying, "Is this not that man who used to sit and beg?" Some said, "It is him. It is he." Others said, "No, no, no. It look, looks like him." But he kept saying, I am the man. That's, it is me. So they said, well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud. He doesn't even know that was what spit. <laughs> the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. I still haven't seen him. Neighbors, they want to meet the man. They, they, again, the crowds, anytime there's a miracle, a sign, there's just all this hubbub that starts to swirl. And so they want to see this astonishing, uh, the person who accomplished this astonishing sign, this miracle. That brings us now to our segment, second movement through this account, uh, an investigation. There, there's this now investigation by the Pharisees into what has happened uh, and this investigation can further be broken down into kind of three different interrogations, and, and they all have a tone of interrogating. So let's, let's take a look. Verse 13 through 17. First, the Pharisees interrogate this man who has been healed. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees, that is the neighbors and everybody, hey, come on, let's go talk to the religious leaders. See what they have to say. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. See, they wanted advice from their local synagogue leaders. And again, we, we project a lot on the Pharisees, and a lot of it is because of what we learn. But again, let's try to remember, at one level, they, they did love God. They loved God's word. Uh, they got off track with their traditions, but they were the leaders of the day. And so, yeah, there's some hubbub about this miracle, but they think if anybody is going to be able to help us figure out what happened, it's, it's the religious leaders, so they, they take this man to the Pharisees. Verse 14, and here comes again the punchline. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes. Now we saw that back in John 5, John 5, 9, uh, when Jesus had healed the man and he took up his bed and walked. Remember John wrote, 
Now that day was the Sabbath. And you can hear like the soundtrack changing the tune like to some minor key or something. The same thing is going on here again. It was the Sabbath. So that's the first thing the Pharisees, they just have a lack of compassion for this, this man that no doubt they're being told had been blind for his whole life. Again, he's at least 13 years old. They just are caught off by the fact that it happened once again on the Sabbath. And you remember, we talked about, they came up with 39 categories of work. If the whole prohibition of working on Sabbath was don't do what your normal occupational work is uh, but one day, but rest, and, and there was application beyond that, but they took that application and came up with 39 categories. One of those categories, scholars tell us, uh, has to do with the fact that if you if you need, as in like kneading dough, and uh, by analogy, if you spit and make mud and you mix mud, that's like kneading dough, okay? Um, then you have broken one of these 39 violations. Uh, verse 15 and 16. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, but how can a man who is a sinner do such a thing? And there is a division now amongst uh, this group of Pharisees that were gathered. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. Now this man hasn't been to Bible college. He hasn't been to Veritas Bible Institute. He hasn't been to any kind of seminary. He has no degrees hanging in his bedroom, all he knows is that he was blind, he washed, and now he can see. And it was the man they called Jesus. He still has not seen Jesus. And so in his mind, this guy must be a prophet. Think about the characters right at this moment. Um, this young man who was blind but can now see. And then you have Pharisees, this group, they were born with physical sight, but they don't see what's going on. They do love God. They love God's word, but oh, they get off track. I love how Don Carson summarizes this. This man's eyes are opening wider. He is beginning to see still more clearly, right? He says the man called Jesus, he's a prophet, while the eyes of his judges are becoming clouded over with blinding theological mist. What, what a contrast. Clouded over with blinding theological mist. God, help me. Help us. I love to study and nuance things, right? The difficult doctrine of the love of God and to go down the trail of, of this. But, oh, God, help me not get clouded over with a theological mist and miss, miss Jesus. Oh God, help me, help us. Well, that's the first interrogation here in this investigation that's happening. Uh, the next interrogation happens to the man's parents, verses 18 to 23. Let me walk through this quickly. Verse 18. 
Now the Jews, now again, that's a reference to the religious leaders, okay? Not, not the Jewish people in general, but the leaders, also in verse 22. They did not believe that he had been blind. At this point, they're convinced, okay, this guy clearly wasn't blind uh, and had received sight. No. Uh, so they call the parents of the man who had received the sight, and they ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Again, they're rude, right? You say he was born blind, but maybe you've just been making it up. His parents, verse 20, answer, we know this is our son who was blind, born blind. And how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. You ask him, he is of age. There's that phrase. That's how we know he's at least 13. He will speak for himself. Now his parents, verse 22, John parenthetically tells us his parents said that because they, they feared the religious leaders. Why? For the religious leaders, that's what the word Jews means here, they had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, kicked out of church. Therefore, his parents said, oh, he's of age, ask him. Like they, they don't want to touch this. And now we might kind of get upset at them for taking a hands-off approach to parenting. Definitely not helicopter parenting, but they just don't want to touch this. Um, but we have to be a little gracious in a, in a culture like theirs, so different than ours, right? They were in a shame-honor culture, um, much less, less individualistic than our own. To lose their place in the community, which is what it would mean to be kicked out of the synagogue, would be to be shunned. Um, and again, if they've had a son born blind and they've had to deal with him and, and struggle, their life was hard. I mean, we can imagine all of those things. So we want to be gracious to a point. Um, as they say, well, he's of age, ask him. Verse 24 now shifts us to the third interrogation, and it's back again to the man who was healed. So verse 24. So for the second time, the leaders call the man who had been blind and said, give glory to God. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. And uh, if you are into underlining your Bible, verse 25 is a great verse to underline. Look at this man's courage, his witness. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Hey, sinner or not, I don't know but I was blind and now I see. Great words, of course. Those are words that have been borrowed. Think of Amazing Grace, the hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was aligned, but now I see. And so we, we use this language from this young man's courageous witness. The interrogation continues, verses 26 to 34. I'm gonna skip it. Uh, it's, it's worth reading and you can read it over your lunch today. But what happens at the end of the, the interrogation, um, they cast him out. They, they literally um, remove him from their presence and from the synagogue. If the parents were concerned they were going to be expelled, well, this man gets expelled from the synagogue by the religious leaders. And that brings us then to uh, the application of this sign, this healing now, back at verse 1, you might recall, 
it said that Jesus saw a man blind. Now here in verse 35 and 36, we see Jesus again initiating with the man. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So some time has passed and word's gotten back to Jesus. And having found him, just like he saw him earlier, now he finds him. And Jesus says, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Remember, he's, he didn't see Jesus when he was healed, so he doesn't know who this guy is. Remember, his sight is growing. Verse 37 and 38, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. His sight is yet still growing. By the way, as an aside, uh, if Jesus wasn't God, and as a good Jewish rabbi, if he had let a man worship him, and if Jesus wasn't God, uh, Jesus as a good rabbi ought to have rebuked the man for worshiping him. But Jesus does not rebuke the man because he's God. He receives this man's worship. His sight is growing this man's and Jesus, who although speaking to the healed man, he's obviously in some kind of a public context because of his next statement, verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do see, I'm sorry, that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. We are spiritually blind and it's only Jesus, the light of the world, who has the power to give us spiritual sight. So some of the Pharisees, verse 40, near him heard this, and they said to him, are we blind? Are we also blind? And then Jesus answered, said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains Again, Don Carson is helpful. He says, this chapter portrays what happens when the light shines. Some are made to see physically, like this man born blind, and spiritually, while others who think they see spiritually, think they understand, turn away, blinded as it were, by that very light. So what is this story tell us about Jesus? What does this story, this sign, this miracle point to beyond itself? Well, first, what I've been repeating throughout, every single person on the face of the earth is spiritually blind, unable to see God, unable to understand the truth. And it is only Jesus, the light of the world, who has the power to give spiritual sight. Do we believe that? That, that? that question Jesus asked the man is being asked of us. Do we believe that? Back in John 1, verses 9 to 13, John had written these words. You can listen. John said, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To believe and receive is to become a child of God. Spiritual birth, to become, to be born, is speaking of spiritual birth, to have the light of the world do its work in us. Because we are born spiritually blind, and only Jesus, the light of the world, has the power to give us that spiritual sight that spiritual birth. Do we believe this? Maybe some of you today, what you need to do in response to God's word is to admit your blindness and say, God, I'm blind. I need you. I try to see. I try to understand. I try to do life my way. But if you're the light of the world, I need you to be my light. And so maybe that's your call today. I hope if it is, you'll come talk to me. But second, Don't neglect to see this truth that Jesus sees and initiates, right? In verse 1, he saw the man. Later in the account, he found the man. He's the one that goes after the spiritually blind. This account of him going after the physically blind helps us understand that he's the one still that initiates and goes after us. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus pursues those who God is drawing to him, and it's this mysterious thing. If we have ever turned toward God, it's because God was drawing us to him. So I asked you this earlier in the year, church. Who's your one? Who are you praying for? That if today God would answer your prayer for God to be the light of the world in their life, to give them spiritual eyes to see Jesus as God, to save them. Who's the one that you're praying for? And so I want to just pause as we end uh, the message and give you a moment to, to say this prayer. It's on the screen, just quietly in your own heart. God, please draw and then say that name just quietly. And maybe you have more than one. Please draw this person to Jesus and give them spiritual sight to believe. So let's just pause and pray that. Father, please keep these names in our prayers. Forgive us for failing to pray. Forgive me for forgetting to pray. But I take you at your word, God. If you aren't drawing, if you aren't seeking out, then the people on my list, my one and my five to ten, can't come to you. Because, God, we're all spiritually blind, and only you, the light of the world, can give us the spiritual sight we need. And now, Father, as we conclude this this look, this sign, I know many of us have received spiritual sight from you, And so our response is to be one of praise and one of thanksgiving. God, ours is to be um, a prayer of gratitude for you being at work in us. So would you give us that gratitude and joy? We thank you that though we were once lost, we have been found. And though we were once blind, now we, we see.
And again, it's not anything we have done. It's, it's all your work at work in us and through us, drawing us. So we give you praise and thanks. And now may we rejoice at that saving work and what you call us to in response for your fame, for your renown. In Jesus' name.